Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of the late great Peter Boston. Welcome to episode 107 of the See Here podcast. My name's Morris. I'm here in Melbourne and joining me in Cape Cod is Ms. Kerry Fristo. Hello. And over in Brantford, Ontario, Mr. Tim Merrill. Hey. And we're here to talk about music-related films, thanks to the generosity of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion podcasts. And what we do is we pick a different film every time. We either speak about it in a round table or we interview directors of music-related films. That's what we do. So if this is your first time on board, welcome on board. Now, we're going to hit you with something this time around. We've got a film from 2014, although there's a couple of moments in the film that indicated that it was actually filmed in 2007. It's called Free the Jazz. This was Tim's pick. This is not the first time on this show that we've discussed a documentary about free jazz music. A couple of years ago, Bernie and myself we were speaking to the director, Tom Sergal, about his film Fire Music. And we'll probably speak a little bit in this show about how this film and that film differ. But yes, our second film about free jazz. So depending on where you stand on the music, your mileage may vary as to how we go with this. But I think we can have a great discussion anyway. So what we'll do is we'll go play the trailer and then we'll be back to discuss the film Free the Jazz. You're listening to See Here, episode 107. <laughs> Jazz is about uh, change, it's about discovery, it's uh, music that's always reflective of the people who created it, and uh, it's about the future. I think the music is uh, always evolving, it's growing. Free jazz. Uh, I never liked that, that word, and uh, because uh, it always gave reasons for a lot of misunderstandings. There's no cl clear 
this and that happening. There's no new form of music. It's a, it's, it's a mix, and it's, that, that makes it even more important who is playing it, what kind of personal imprint you can put on the music, who is the individual behind the instrument, and what do you do together with your colleagues on stage. And that there is no new jazz or post this and post that and like, you know. It's, it's a mix and I think it's really good. Not everything is great, but I think there is a willingness of, of experimenting and trying new things out, which is very, very healthy for the, for the music and also involves the audience. なんだろう、いろんな国に行って、いろんな影響を受けて、例えばいろんなライブを見たり、いろんな文化に触れたりして、それに影響を受けて、その、どんどん音楽も育っていってるから、なんだろうな、外からの影響っていうのは大きいん
so it was Moondog was one of the first ones that I really heard it. Moondog and then Sun Ra, Stockhausen. Just coming back for a second, Sun Ra is an interesting case because he didn't start out being improvisational. No, a lot of those early no. recordings are more like just straight ahead bebop tonal jazz. Right. But, I mean, but it was eclectic for what he was doing. I mean, it wasn't mm. your normal run of the mill jazz. Mm. And then, you know, it, yeah. <laughs> and then in the, the 80s, I got in John Zorn and all the noisiness that he created. Because for me, I think that a lot of times some of my favorite music is a lot of stuff that I really hated initially. And a lot of my the music that I've grown to hate is stuff that I just become immediately attached to right from the beginning. It's like I just immediately quickly got bored with it because it was just so there. Like just, you know, like, okay, I get it. Yeah, this is good. And then, you know, after, you know, three years, I'm like, I'm done with that. Like, I can't. But then when something comes at you like an enigma, like a knot, and you're like, I've got to untie this thing. Like, how the hell did it, what, what is this? Like, you know, and it's like a puzzle. When I was younger, jazz was like that to me. Hearing Miles for the first time and hearing a lot of like, for example, Mingus and a lot of the noisier, Albert Eiler, you know, things like that, where right. initially, like I said, it seemed more like a conundrum. And I was just kind of like, what the hell's going on? There's something here, but I just can't really. And then one day it's just like, oh, okay, yeah, like I got it, you know. And that becomes a lot of my favorite music. The reason I picked this film is actually on YouTube, my wife and I, we'd watch sometimes, they weren't really documentaries, but they were kind of almost like artist profiles of visual artists where they talk about the materials they use, the medium, and then they'd show their art. And then they'd go back to the artist and say, well, I did this 10 years ago, or I had a run of horses that I painted. Here's some of the horses and whatever. Right? And it was not necessarily a documentary. It was just more of a, like I say, like a, a profile mm -hmm. of these people and where they were coming from. So that's an element that I like about this film is that for those that aren't really in the know of free jazz or, or just kind of, it's a heavy mire to wade into, like quicksand, you know. And I think that this film, you know, like Carrie said, it's not the greatest structured film, but it's a decent little primer for some people to just kind of wade in and see what it's all about. Now, the one thing I want to say before I pass it on to you guys is, Morris and I, we talked about this earlier, but what's interesting is a lot of, like, artists never look at their art as commodity, or at least they shouldn't, you know, word in my books, but everyone around the mouth does. And you get this art that is so kind of like repellent and people think it can never be commodified. Like, for example, like punk rock, death metal, uh, gangster rap, all this stuff. But yet it's all been commodified. And free jazz, to me, improvisational jazz is kind of like the last frontier where it's like, try commodifying this shit. It's spontaneous. It's on the spot. It's never the same twice. So try making a buck off of this one. And it's pure. There's people have just basically said, this is like the last wild buffalo running out in on the range, you know, and everyone's just like, we're never going to catch that one. Screw it. Just let it run because there's no way we're going to wrangle that one in. So that's why I've always kind of admired this genre of music. I can't remember where it was that I read it or heard it, but there was some discussion going that was saying that jazz in the 80s or maybe even in the 70s, you know, with maybe not with fusion, but, you know, bands like Spyro, Gyra, they'd made it so nice and pleasant. Mangione. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they made, and, and I don't know whether it was commodified, but it made it more acceptable, more pleasing to the ears of people who didn't necessarily like jazz right. And you're right this can't be commodified for polite company no i remember something that was kind of it was kind of sick but it was funny years ago that i had on video where it was um footage of a plane crash from tarmac where it was like a 747 that had come down and, and blown up in flames and somebody had dubbed over it mangione's feel so good 
was just kind of like, you see this plane just come down into the flames. It was hell. Like, it's just like saying, well, this is a tragedy. That's a tragedy. You know, let's put it together. You know, this is, and I couldn't help but laugh. But at the same time, I'm just like, that is so wrong. Got any Mangione stories, Kerry? I can remember that album coming out because he'd been around forever. He's a really good musician, actually, you know, but that album really just hit. That's the one where he's on the front cover cradling his trumpet like it's a baby or something like that. Yes, yes. (laughs) But that was was a huge hit. And it wasn't just like Muzak. I mean, it was like everywhere. And then it went into sort of Muzak. Like there's one of the scenes in Fargo. They're at this diner and they're paying them and you can hear it in the background. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then when you thought it could, you know, we thought they could get any whiter or more bland. Then Kenny G. Us, Kenny G. You know. <laughs> no, Kenny G is far worse. Kenny, oh, yeah. you know, but Chuck Mangione, and if they did make fun of it too, because do you remember that show King of the Hill? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah he was on he that. Was on, yeah. He was on that show a bunch because they loved Chuck Mangione. Well, he's from Texas and they were all in Texas and, mm-hmm. you know, so it was fun. That was funny. But So where do you stand on its antithesis? free jazz, Carrie. Where do you stand on free jazz and get your initial thoughts about the film? Well, it depends. Two of the musicians who were talking were saying the music depends on who's there, what their mood is, how they're feeling that day, whatever. Something that strikes them, it's because it's improvisational. Now, they also said two of the guys, it was Trevor... Uh, Trevor Watts and Connie Bauer. Connie Bauer were saying, yeah, yesterday we were going to play today. So we, 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 we practiced for eight hours yesterday separately so that they would have their chops down and then they would come in and, and play this gig, which I, you know, was, is interesting. The, the thought of musicians completely playing separately and then getting together just for the gig. Well, you know, this is an interesting thing. And it kind of hit me afterwards when I was talking with my wife about this. Think about this in terms of almost like a martial arts match where you get two people that train separately. They come together, and they're basically just back and forth with each other. Well, that's what jazz has always seemed to me anyway. Well, in a good way. You know, I don't mean it in a bad way. But with jazz, too, it's like like my wife said, but at the end of the day, they have to entertain people. Like, people that pay money to see these guys. And they're like, yeah. but they're not, they're not pulling solos. You know, they're not Jimmy Page. You know what I mean? They're not playing the greatest hits. It's like a lot of these people get into what they're doing. I know, they know they want to entertain. They know people are there to see them. But that's not their priority. Priority. The priority is the conversation between the people, the parties at hand. That's right. that, that's the priority. Is is just saying, well, you guys are, you know, we're letting you in. You bought tickets. You're privy to this. But here's the car crash. This is what's going down. Which is probably why I'm not as huge a fan because I <laughs> I feel like these are the people who, uh, if I met them, would be completely insufferable. But that's just my opinion. They might be really good musicians, and I think a lot of them they were technically you could see you know that they were really good musicians there's kind of a misnomer with free jazz too because when you say to a lot of people you use the term free jazz they're expecting something that's going to be sounding like you know throwing ducks into a cement mixer but it's not always that but it is sometimes that no it is sometimes (laughs) that but i'm saying but what i'm saying is that sometimes there's been acoustic improvisational stuff there's been like acapella like there's been people that have used rushing water in certain things with free jazz uh certain electronic sounds like it's not just it's not just you know no no i mean 
I thought that it was interesting because there what it really ran the gamut. I mean, some of the group, some of them were just like two people and one playing the drums and one's playing the, the saxophone or something. So it's not a traditional duo, you know, that would necessarily be playing together. To some extent, they can't get away from melody. There's going to be a little melody that just it ekes in there, you know, even if they're trying to avoid it. And there were a couple of them that were very interesting. The, the, the repetitive structure ended up coming up with this really interesting melody and this really this neat interplay between them but like i really liked the soul and pimp sessions the um yeah the japanese, the japanese. that's the least free <laughs> it's the least free jazz To me, that wasn't free jazz at all. I wonder how they ended up in the film because free jazz is not about structure. And I want to talk in a minute and describe the difference between, say, tonal, modal, and free jazz. But I can't remember if this is in the film or if this is in another interview that I heard with Peter Brotsman. Either he or someone had said that if a lot of people don't necessarily like free jazz, they just think it's a bunch of people playing whatever they want. And he said, no, it's not that. It's when multiple musicians, and it gets harder with the more musicians that there are, but when you've got several musicians, they're having a conversation over each other, but I'm listening to what you're doing and I'm reacting to that, and you're listening to what I'm playing and you're going to react to that. So it's not just random stuff. It might appear to most people that it's random, but I imagine that the trained jazz musician and not just any trained jazz musician would be those who subscribe to the whole notion that free jazz is a valid art form. And one of the most weird things I remember reading was that Miles Davis, the man who gave us Bitches Brew, said that free jazz was horrible or something to that effect. And I thought, you've got to be kidding, because I remember listening to Bitches Brew, I think, back in the 80s. I got a second-hand copy of it back when second-hand records were about 4 or $5, not like they are nowadays. I got it for 4 or 5 bucks, took it home, and then I loaned it to a friend who was a jazz fanatic and said, take your time bringing it back. That's okay. And he normally did take his time bringing back albums. He returned that quicker than anything he's ever, he ever returned to me. He didn't get it. I didn't get it. Nowadays, I'll listen to it, and I think, Huh. I mean, it's probably radical for the time, but I don't know why I found it so hard to digest at the time. Because compared to someone like Peter Brotsman, who we hear in this film, Bitches Brew is far more easily digestible. This was new to me. I had heard John Coltrane before, and I had heard some Miles Davis before, and some Ornette Coleman. And Ornette Coleman is supposed to be one of the beginning free jazz people. And I'd heard them before, but I guess I didn't know the category of free jazz. And I had, I was unaware of these other groups that were in the, in the film. So I was listening to that and it's interesting because I was re-listening to some Ornette Coleman. There's still that structure because, you know, when you, he'll have like the entire band will do a, um, like a flourish 
and then it'll be someone's turn for a solo. Now the band's still playing, but, and then they have somebody like Don Cherry or Freddie Hubbard or somebody like that will come in, do a solo, and then the group comes back and then they do this flourish again. And so that to me is sort of the structure of what I've seen in jazz before, where there's a combo, they do this stuff together, and then this guy has a solo, this person has a solo, this, you know, and stuff like that. And they get back together with whatever the overarching theme is. And so he still does that, although there is sort of sort of sort of atonality to it to some extent. You know, it's not as melodic as some other jazz. And then Coltrane too. I mean, I was listening to Coltrane do my favorite things, Sound of Music and all that sort of stuff. And so he does that. And then I was listening to something else. It was um, Ascension. There's a long way between <laughs> Blue Train, My Favorite Things, A Love Supreme, and then Ascension. It's a progression or it's, it's a man who's changing as he wants to discover new stuff. And that's why we still talk about John Coltrane because he was innovative and and he said, I'm not standing still. I'm not going to do the one thing. I'm but not going to expect you can't expect a man to paint with one color. No, but a lot of musicians do. It's interesting because I will say that all of the musicians that I saw on this, even if I didn't care for the music that they were playing in, you could see that they were accomplished, adept musicians. They've gone through all the things where they've they started playing classical music and then it got into something else and they were in a rock band or they were in a sky band or they were in a heavy metal band and then they kept discovering different kinds of music and they were just bored with it. It's another language and they just were like I need to learn another language and so that they went into this free jazz because they were like I know English, I know Russian, I know Arabic, I know I need Hungarian, I need whatever I need Turkish, I need Yiddish, I need to learn these languages so that's to me what it is. It was just sort of like a craving for, for something new. It's like being in the middle of a forest with an axe and trying to cut a path through somewhere that's never been touched. And I think that's what I know what you're saying about these people that are proficient musicians. Some would say, well, if they know how to play damn well, then why don't they? Well, they do, but they just are doing a different thing. Yeah. Right. But I'm saying they're doing it their way. You know, they're not making it accessible for anybody. It's just, they're saying, you know, look, this is what I do. And neither, you know, if you like it, great. If you don't like it, even better. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like a lot of it is like comedians always want to do drama. And then actors always want to direct. Once they get something down, they want to move to the next thing. You know, that's kind of, that's how I was thinking about it too. Right. And the other thing is too, with free jazz that I find that is amazing, right? Is the fact is, it's almost like the snowflake phenomena where everyone is unique. And this idea that one sitting, you could have three different people that have never played together and pull this off and do this one thing that's only going to happen right there and then. And even if those three people, you know, came back the next night and tried to do another set, it would never be the same as the first one. And that's a difference from a lot of other forms of music. Whereas, you know, it's like, all right, we're all going to do Love Me Do. No, ain't happening. You know, it's like, no. It even comes back to how we should distinguish between, say, tonal jazz, regular bebop, and free jazz or tonal modal and free jazz. So if, as Kerry Witten said, the structure of so much bebop that we know and love, I mean, just pick something like by Herbie Hancock, Cantaloupe Island. We're going to get that theme that the whole band plays pretty straight time, and then Freddie Hubbard's going to go often play a slightly different variation on the theme before he goes and plays something completely improvisational but the rest of the band is still playing 
Herbie's composition. They're still playing pretty straight. But in free jazz, as you say, Tim, every night, it's something 100% different. So that means like Peter Brotsman was never going to be able to record Machine Gun Part 2. Although I was listening to Machine Gun. I'll come to that in a few minutes. But they went and re-released his Machine Gun album from 1968, which was, I think, like his second ever album. And there's a couple of different versions of the title track, Machine Gun. Of course, each one sounds completely different to the last. There's just the aggressiveness is common between the three because when it was recorded was the Vietnam War. And this is as much about his and other free jazz musicians reaction to the times, which probably means that any free jazz musicians who are working today who are political would come up with some very interesting stuff, some very aggressive stuff. I want to come back to the politics in a couple of minutes, but I was having a look at a website called thejazzpianosite.com because I wanted to be able to get from people who could describe it better than my untrained brain as to what the difference is between tonal, modal, and free jazz. Because we listen to free jazz, we intuitively know what it is. We, we could identify that. We could pick that out in a lineup. But tonal jazz, according to the website, uses functional harmony in a major or minor key with a tonal center. So basically a set of rules that govern chord progressions, how they get resolved to the tonic chord, you know, the root chord of the melody. Uh, and this obviously applies to music outside of jazz. Uh, modal jazz, which is what Miles Davis became a champion for, and I'm sure a lot of his contemporaries in the 60s, like Herbie and Freddie and the like. Uh, the piano site says it uses non-functional harmony, and the definition of that apparently is a chord sequence that doesn't want to resolve, and that makes sense to me. Uses non-functional harmony with or without a tonal center, but still based in one of the diatonic modes, and which I thought was unusual because I thought that modal jazz, the whole point was that it moved between various modes. Free jazz, it said, is often atonal with or without a tonal center, not in any diatonic key. The soloist is not restricted by chords or keys or modes or form. So I think probably to describe it even further, uh, in traditional music of any type, musicians work with tonality, tempo, rhythm, and meter. And in free jazz, there can be polytonality or atonality, polyrhythm, but mostly, as you said, Tim, it's music of the moment. But I love the description in the film that said it's the musicians reacting off each other. That makes so much sense to me now. I, I, I've enjoyed what I've been hearing the last few years. It sort of makes sense. But I mean, I think you mentioned before, Kerry, Connie Barron, Trevor Watts, and I think it was Trevor Watts who came up with two rules, he says in the film. If you can't hear another musician, you're playing too loud. And if the music you're playing doesn't relate to what you hear others create, why are you even in the group? And that's the focus even if you don't necessarily still get the music or like free jazz, but it makes complete sense that if you've got a group of people playing together and they're doing all this atonal stuff and they're experimenting with all different sorts of rhythms and they're going all over the place without any of the structure of tonal jazz, but it still makes 100% sense that they're working within the format of what's he playing right? Okay, this is something good that will work with what you're doing over there rather than just saying, I'm just going to do my own shit. Completely. It's funny because as much as you know, it's improvisational and it's random, at the same time, it really makes me think of being a fan of old Shaw Brothers and Hong Kong films. There was like guys like Yun Biao and, and Jackie Chan, where they would set up scenes where it looked like it was just this random cavalcade of bouncing off the walls and, and acrobatics and all of this shit that you were just like, it just looked like they were just kinetic on the spot, but it was all choreographed. 
and a lot of it for the martial arts guys, they would riff off each other as well, where they got so well at working together that it would just be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And, and they would just on the spot set up scenes as they were just filming it. So what I'm saying is that in regards to free jazz, there's a lot of that. I'm not saying that it's staged or it's choreographed, but these people get so familiar sometimes with working with each other or discovering new players and new approaches. Like, I've got the Mana style Kung Fu. Well, I've got the Monkey style, you know, and it's the same. And then they both, and they're starting to learn what the others can do. And it's almost like, like I said, like going back to like a martial arts exhibit or something like that, right? And it, it, that's how I really, I really see it. I think, I think that makes that's a really good analogy. Plus, I mean, it's interesting because free jazz supposedly no form or format to it to some extent, anyway. But each of the groups that were in this film sounded different. So obviously, the instrumentation matters, the musicians themselves matter, and then things like, are you up or down today? Are you, you know, you want to play a sad song or a happy one? You want to play crazy, angsty? angry because i mean peter brotsman seems to like the rapid fire i mean that's the same with the like the machine gun and all that kind of stuff because the things he was playing was you know he was really playing you know fast 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 and there were other folks who were like just doing these sweeping and stuff like that so they did all have a style you know and there were different styles for the different groups so as free as it is there are styles to it and i noticed that the guys there were two fellas that were at the beginning and i'm trying to think of what they're oh it was joe mcphee roy campbell had a completely different tone from that guy Matt's uh, like Gustafsson, who just was playing the big Barry sax and like, he literally did sound like he was choking a goose. I just thought that was interesting to me because there were definitely were different styles in there. Right. And then one thing I was going to say too about free jazz that I've found over years is that there's a level playing field with the performers when they get on stage. And what I mean by that is it's just like with rock and roll, you'd never see Roger Daltrey say, you know, well, we're just going to bring some kid up here and we don't know what he can do, but let's just find out it's not going to happen. You know, like, well, I mean, actually, well, actually, that did happen, but that's no, a separate but, story. No, Mooney, but, you know, no, but I'm saying there's kind of a, a pecking order with, with other genres of music where, you know, people gain notoriety and free jazz a lot of these guys that have been around for years like you know peter brosman for example would be like i don't give a shit where you're coming from what you've done i want to sit down and just do it like i'll sit down with anybody all you know it's like like there's a level playing field there's none of this you know showboating or uh going into a solo like no there's no solos it's, it's just a collective of minds that are just together and like i say all the egos are at the door 
Sort of coming back to what you were speaking, Kerry, about how a different performance, different musicians will sound different for a variety of reasons based on whatever, you know, their training, where they come from, what they've listened to. But I was listening to an interview with Peter Brotsman, like a one hour thing I saw on YouTube. It was really fascinating because he was saying that about the time that he and other free jazz musicians from Germany were really getting into it in the 60s, they were the generation following off from World War II and they saw this music, they saw how they played as a reaction not just to the world, the events of the world around them, like what was happening in Vietnam but also they saw it as a violent rejection of everything that their parents had done in World War II and so that's why his music is violent, it's visceral, it's cathartic I just found that really such a fascinating explanation of what it was that he did. But when Bernie and I were preparing to speak to Tom Sergal for the Fire Music documentary, uh, at the time, I didn't get around to finishing it, but I did start reading a book called Free Jazz Black Power by two French writers, Philippe Calais and uh, Jean-Louis Camoli. I'm probably butchered their names. But they were making the case that American free jazz musicians, there's a link between the music and the black liberation movement. There's been obviously, I guess, a lot of connection between jazz and funk and soul that was related to civil rights issues. But I think the book was trying to make the same point like what Peter Brotsman was saying about a complete fuck you to their parents' generation with their music. So in this book, Free Jazz Black Power, the free jazz musicians like Ornette Coleman and Don Cherry and whoever else, that was their artistic expression of of the frustration that they were feeling as part of the, you know, the civil rights movement. There was nothing mentioned about the politics in the fire music documentary, and there was next to no mention of it in this film. This is all about artistic expression. I had to find this out from watching a whole one-hour interview with Peter Brotsman. And what I was doing for a lot of this, where, where there was a particular artist that interested me, I would watch something else that they had done an interview with or listen to a whole album or something like that to get a wider idea about what it was that they did and what you said earlier on tim is that this film is it's like a nice sample you like this okay go search out some more it's i think we were speaking the other day about it and i i might have said this is like speed dating on the one hand after i watched the film the first time and i watch it twice after i watch it the first time i found it maybe like you did carry a little bit unsatisfactory and then i sort of got to thinking about it no hang on if this film by its nature gets people who are saying all right i'm gonna watch this film about free jazz and see what I think after that. And it's like, watch, watch four minutes, two minutes of discussion and two minutes of them playing music, move on to the next. I think if this gets people who are not traditionally into free jazz to maybe say, all right, well, maybe I'll, I'll explore it a little bit more. Or even if they come out and say, no, I'm still not convinced. It's been fine, but it's not sort of like been 90 minutes of here's the one thing. So in that regard, I actually think it's for what its aim was. I actually think it's quite good. I really like this film. Yeah, it's like a filmic listicle. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
No, I was going to say before, when you were talking about Bratzman, you know, like saying fuck you to his family because of the past and everything like that. A lot of that actually, when Krautrock started, you know, with Kraftwerk and Can and Noi and all those bands in the early 70s, it was a protest against what they called Schlager music in Germany. Schlager was this kind of folky, kind of like schmaltzy, going back to the old ways. It wasn't like Oompa Oompa music, but it was just this kind of false nationalistic kind of and the kids in the 70s were just like we don't want anything to do with any of this shit it's all bullshit so then they started Krautrock and and it makes sense with what Brosman was saying in terms of his approach to jazz being the same way I'm sure that other jazz musicians could probably make the same sort of valid claim, but it just means that there might be a soloist who's sort of going about his or her own way while the rest of the band is doing something a whole lot more structured. I mean, like I'm sure I've told you before, Tim, that my favourite jazz musician who's walked the planet was uh, Dexter Gordon. Absolutely love him. And yet, you know, he's nothing in the way of free jazz at all, but he always played with a different band, every Blue Note album. But when he solos, it's his own thing. Never atonal but he's doing his own expression while the rest of the band is doing something a bit more structured with a little bit of improvisation whereas free jazz is just the whole enchilada i would say that the rebellion it could be political it could be a rebellion against family against the time against things like that but I also think these guys are all good musicians. These people are all good musicians. There was one woman on there. She was a drummer. And also that Japanese lady who played, I can't remember what the instrument was, but oh, it looked yeah. like a harp. I think it was a stand-up bass that she was playing on its side. That's what it looked like. But it, she was interesting. Solid musicians. So I would imagine that to put food on the table... They were playing sessions. They were sidemen. So they're playing regular, traditional kinds of music for the most part. And so this is their time. I can't imagine, I'm sorry, but I can't imagine that they're making a whole big pile of money off of this stuff. Because one of the guys even said... People actually like it. We get a good response when we play, but it takes a courage of the guys that are booking these clubs to actually hire us to come. And I would imagine that that's true because you want to fill your club and you know, a lot of people don't know free jazz from a hole in the wall, so that might not be the way to do it. We should make mention at this point that all the musical performances in this film seem to be taking place at the one club in Budapest. I think it's A38 or something like that. So I don't know whether free jazz is all what they do or they just said, oh, over a period of so many months or years where every time we get a free jazz musician, we'll just film another interview with them or something like that. But A38 is obviously a club that encourages that sort of thing so there's a show this has nothing to do with it but there's a show called bar rescue that's an american show and this guy who's kind of obnoxious but a, a good businessman goes into these bars and clubs and tells them what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and how to get their business on track because these are all clubs that are about to go down the tubes and one of the things he always says, he'll get folks that have a jazz club and he'll say, jazz clubs don't bring in people. In the United States, as a rule, jazz clubs don't get filled. So, I mean, if you want to have jazz one or two nights a week and then you have different bands the rest of the week, that might be okay. But every single night you're just a jazz club, you're not going to make any money. 
And he says that over and over again. And he's he's done, you know, actual studies to back this up. He's got the statistics to back it up. So that's kind of interesting. That might be geographically based. So like you imagine somewhere like New York City, they can sustain jazz clubs that run seven nights a week. Most of the country, you can't. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, I, I would think that, uh, yeah, New York City, sure. I don't think LA could even sustain it. You know, maybe. And from time to time, Boston has had them. So that made me think that all oh, these guys, their day job is studio sidemen, you know, and for what they their artistic life, they are it's wider than, free jazz. than that. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because one guy who I really, really admired musically, but barely got a chance to have two words in the film, was the drummer Paul Nilsson Love. And he plays with Peter Brotsman, and I think he's playing with uh, Ken Vandermark as well in the film. Ken Ken liked to talk. Uh, he did. <laughs> Paul didn't get much of a way of a word in. So I read an interview with him and that guy's incredible. So he was a composer himself for a brief time, but he just found he was, I don't know, he got more work as a drummer than as a composer. But what he, one thing he did do, he went to Ethiopia, spent time in Ethiopia with the local musicians learning Ethiopian rhythms. And he spent time going to Brazil, working with the local musicians to learn Brazilian rhythms. And I don't know whether it's just that he incorporates that mentality within his free jazz playing. And I imagine that he does, but maybe Maybe he's also using that as an opportunity to play that type of music. And I imagine there's probably a bigger call in some places for uh, Brazilian music or Latin music in general than there is for free jazz. So he's got that tool in his arsenal. But it's a fascinating backstory. This is not the nature of this film to give you that information, but it is the nature to say, hey, I really like that guy. What else has he done? And thank God for YouTube. You can find all this stuff out there or the interviews and and the like on on the net. And just these guys are not the people in this film. There's plenty of information and plenty of music out there. I'd say 99.9% of the free jazz musicians, they're all so frigging diverse in what they do. And I mean, for example, like I was saying about earlier about not being able to corral these, like the genre, you know, not being able to contain it. Where when somebody would be like, oh, John Zorn, he's got a famous name, like Zorn's a marketable commodity. No, he's not, because it's like, you know, he's got so much that he's done, so diverse that with a lot of, like, for example, a lot of the guys in this film, if you don't necessarily like what they've done, these performances that are in this film, you can still, like Morris said, look at, other things they've done and you'd be surprised to see how different and how diverse a lot of these projects that these guys are involved in and you might actually find something that suits you that's more palatable it's interesting you mentioned Zorn because I mean I've got a couple of albums that he's done with his Bar Kochba quintet and I mean that's if you have even a mild interest in jazz it's very very accessible and then I think you Tim put me a few years ago into Spillane
it all sounded like here's a bunch of tunes uh we've, we've gone and recorded them on tape let's throw them up in the air and stick them together that's not exactly like free jazz because it's all composed stuff but nothing really sequences into the next thing quite logically but it's it's, it's almost his- like uh the film momentum uh, no, because even that has an order because that's going backwards. Yeah, yeah. That's but whereas, order, where none but... Of, whereas none of this really leads into the next in, in any sort of logical way. And then there's Naked City, which is, got. I mean, it's not free jazz. It's like, what, free metal or something like that. <laughs> City's free jazz. I mean, to me, it's more more structured. But it's but it's completely impro- but it's but it is impro. It, it bears a connection to the music in this film for sure. Love him and admire him so much. And he's he's a real innovator. And he, like he's going to make a couple of hundred albums. I just wanted to mention maybe a couple of other artists and open the floor to you guys. If there's any other artists that you've not mentioned yet that really struck you both, Kerry, was this someone who who you particularly found? Yeah, them. I want to seek more out. Well, to be honest, it was Soil and Pimp. I thought they were terrific, the Soil and Pimp sessions. I really enjoyed them. But I also like when it was um, Michael Jeffrey Stevens and Joe Fonda, they were playing piano and bass. I swear I was like, Adrian Ballou has got to be a fan. It was just something that struck me about the music that hit these elephant talk or something, you know, from that time frame. process when I was listening to Soil and Pimp was that there were shades of Zappa in there too. And just the musicianship and just the layering of music. I'm still wondering how they made it into this song because their music sounded very composed. Motoharu who had the megaphone and I don't know, maybe he was (laughs) vamping spontaneously over what the band was playing, but that sounded very composed. But man, I I, I want one of their albums. I I gotta find again Morris again Morris though, I think you know we can't really define free jazz so strictly or so confined i mean there's you know like again like i was saying it's so diverse and there's so many different ways of approaching it this sounds like music that they have composed that they've gone and written down and the horn sections playing in harmonies i mean they might sort of like the drummer may move it up around but he's still working within a sphere that composed music is but i mean it's brilliant i loved 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 what kerry what kerry was talking about too with the zappa notion you know like if you listen to his album of uh, 200 motels that soundtrack is pretty obtruse it, it seems and it sounds like a lot of elements of free jazz and that oh yeah always it's, com- it's composed although it's composed i mean it i mean for zappa it's composed it sounds right? like you know there's elements of like i said free jazz in there my whole thing is that his the layering that he does with the different choruses of voices you know and he's got you know uh keyboards and he's got this thing <laughs> Name of you know that that Ruth played and the guitars and then sometimes horns and sometimes strings and you know I have to pull everything back towards to Zappa because I love him so much. <laughs> but I grew up listening to that a lot, and so I kept finding sort of parallels in there. Jazz is not dead; it just smells funny. 
We already mentioned by name Conrad Bauer and Trevor Watts before. I found Trevor Watts's description of why he went into music and particularly why he went into free jazz so interesting. I mean, you were saying before, Kerry, or maybe it was you, Tim, I, I don't remember, about this is not the sort of music that's going to keep you financially stable. But Trevor Watts said that he left school early, I think at the age of 15, and like where he lived in, in England basically if you didn't finish school you work down the mines and he said i did not want to work down the mines so i figured i wanted to play music but i find it interesting that as a saxophone player he said he became passionate about free jazz and yet you know that's hardly gonna as we've already said that's not necessarily going to put food on the table but yeah he thought well if i'm going to struggle at least i want to struggle doing what i love to do and this is going to sound like a very vacuous statement here but did either of you get a feeling looking at him that shit i'm looking at christopher lloyd and larry david um the other thing i found interesting about watching uh the two of them playing together so you know conrad bauer playing the trombone which i thought was an unusual instrument in this context but conrad bauer on the trombone trevor what's on the saxophone and conrad is like rock steady he's just standing there and he's playing you know what he feels he has to and trevor watts he's dancing he's moving his feet back and forth and just the two of them they're sort of like the odd couple they're fi- the felix unger and oscar madison of the fr- of the free jazz set but i just i really enjoyed watching them and that was something that i thought about it might be good for people watching this film is that listening to Ornette Coleman or listening to any of these people just with a record or a CD or streaming or however you choose to listen to your music is one thing and that may be where it's difficult but when you watch these people and you see how they interact I found that far more appealing I don't know if that makes me vacuous I mean because we've always gone and sort of said that music should stand up for itself and the whole argument against music videos was that the music should be for itself you shouldn't have to be watching that something that's been directed or watching the performance but we all go we love watching performers perform live on the stage we love to go to a big concert we love to go to uh, rock clubs or jazz clubs so there is an appeal to watch people do what they do and i think i sort of found that I mean, I'm still going to be listening to stuff off CD or record, but I'm going to probably be tuning into a lot more YouTube videos of these musicians because I find that watching them play, watching them interact, like having that conversation, that musical conversation was really, really appealing to me. And these two were in that regard, probably the most appealing in the entire thing. I can recommend something on YouTube to both of you if you are so inclined and you ever get a chance or even to any of the listeners out there. There's an American indie band called Oxbow. Their singer, Eugene Robinson, he's kind of got a voice sometimes that's almost like a tormented Sam Cooke or a tormented, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but he's it's one of a kind. But anyways, there's a performance I can send. I'll put a link in with the, the show of them playing with Peter Brodsman. And Brodsman is playing sax, and he's just incredible. He's on fire. And it's nothing improvisational. It's just like a slow, a sultry 3 a.m. glass of scotch burning down the house. Like, it's just unbelievable. It's just, wow. So I, I just highly want to recommend that.
This comes back to the discussion that you and I were having a couple of days ago, Tim, because I'd gone and said that my impression of Brotsman was that it was all aggression. And, you know, I'd heard a couple of other things besides Machine Gun, but then I got to listen to an album that, like, recorded. It was a live album recorded, I think, at the Berlin Jazz Fest about a year before he died. And the name of the album is called Catching Ghosts. It was more like what you're describing there. It was a lot more, I, I don't want to use the word laid back, but it was more dreamy. No. It was more, yeah, it was, it was more dreamlike, the sort of thing that you might hear maybe in a David Lynch film. Exactly. It would work there. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And, and it's not because he was 80 years old or 82 years old and couldn't get up to it. It's just, this is it's creatively what, meant, what I want to do here. It was what was meant for the project. Yeah. Right. Right. But right. you know, it's funny because when you say that, you know, like Brosman was just aggression or if some people thought he was just aggression there's different ways to be aggressive i mean if you if you stroke somebody's feet enough times with a feather it's going to get to a point where it feels like glass you know what i'm saying like there's different ways that you can be aggressive it, it, it's not all about volume it's not all about you know jarring notes it can be even the most slowed down simple thing where it just becomes so punishing because it's just so direct or it's just so sublime yep. no that, that makes perfect sense and that that's the case with this i want to make one more recommendation from the film pianist Matthew Shipp and probably for people who want to dip their toe into the water of free jazz I think he's a really good way to do it because piano music I, I don't know I, I probably find that no there's no way that I've heard it that it can't be appealing to me and he has in the film even when he like he said that when he was a kid he became uh, attracted to the music of Nina Simone he saw her on TV and said wow I want to do that and then he became a fan of Oscar Peterson and Herbie Hancock but he then discovered Cecil Taylor so thought, all right this is a direction I want to go and I want to be avant-garde and we see him playing in the film and once again it's that dreamlike way that you know I was just talking about with the last Peter Brosman album I listened to an album of uh, Matthew Shipp called Circular Temple. And this is with a trio, not him by himself, but it's still really, really wonderful stuff. And here we talked about, you know, the evolution of John Coltrane, what he did. But when you sort of think of a piano trio, you tend to think of people like Bill Evans or Dudley Moore, you know, piano trio type thing, and probably, you know, countless others. But when you listen to Matthew Shipp's trio on this album, it's a, a million miles away from what they did. And yet I like to think that if you're a fan of Bill Evans, that you would still enjoy Circular Temple by the Matthew Ship Trio. Uh, musically, as I said, it's a long way. And it's great to see that a piano trio can be multiple things because I never used to think so. But that's me being vacuous. Well, he definitely has a classical background. I mean, the way he was playing, I mean, he's just really talented. Even the short amount of time that you get to see him in this film. You know, he was quite, he was quite talented. But when you sort of think anyone who gets to that level of uh, uh, musical performance, most pianists start from the European classical tradition. I, I don't know, maybe there are some musicians who will write into us and say, no, you idiot. I've no idea whether Professor Longhair ever started with learning Beethoven and Chopin before sort of moving on to doing um, his style of New Orleans music. I don't know, maybe that's what he did right from the word go. But I think 
certainly, you know, as you say, musicians who get maybe to that level of jazz performance probably started classical. And that's all the more amazing to think that, you know, classical music, if you were to be a concert level pianist, you have to have the most rigorous amount of discipline and you're playing. I mean, okay, granted that there are different classical pianists who will play the same piece of sheet music maybe with different dynamics or something like that but basically there's there's a rigor there and and you go from that sort of rigor and that sort of discipline to something that's completely free or composing on the spot it's not a discipline that most classical musicians know anything about so i i think that for him, that's just amazing what someone like him has gone and done and anyway so i'll be playing a little bit of music here un underneath our conversation here of, of matthew ship as i will have done for uh, any of the other musicians we've discussed Before we wrap it up, any final thoughts about the film or the music? Well, it turned me on to a whole uh, new genre of music, which, you know, because I really didn't know very much about it uh, prior to watching. So thank you, Tim, for recommending that, because I always like to learn new things and find out about new musicians and new, uh, just new things in general. It was fascinating. I mean, it's just a really different way of looking at music, and that's always interesting to see. No, it's funny because like you're, you're saying a new way of looking at music here, you know, like everybody learns, but with free jazz, it's about unlearning. You know, what I mean by that is this unlearning your notions of what music is, of learning a different way of, of walking. Like I say, unlearning everything or putting everything that, you know, you know about most music aside to just kind of, and it's hard to do because, you know, you, you listen to music and you have expectations. Well, okay, this is going to happen. No, no, it did. And that should happen. Well, you know, that didn't happen there. It should be louder here. No, it's not louder. It's, it's like, that's what's exciting about it to me is that it's unpredictable. You can't predict and, the next chord in a chord sequence. No, no. And then these guys where they'll start doing something that's predictable, like in a loop or something that's derivative. And you're going, okay, okay, I got this. I got this. I got this. And I was like, no, we're not doing that no more. Done. You know? And then you're like, well, what? They put the brakes on. It's like doing you know, ear gymnastics. They're challenging you to kind of bend your ears to follow along. Or just say, look, we're going on this trip. We don't know where we're going. We're going to cut a path through the bush. We might wade through some quicksand, you know, we might get stung by some bees. And I don't know, but we're going. So you can either follow us or don't. And once you learn how to kind of navigate and follow along with them, it's well worth the trip. I think the other thing, though, that's worth sort of pointing out in relation to that is... I can't remember if it was in the film or in interviews that I've read, but a lot of these free jazz musicians said that they still love the traditional tonal bebop. They say, we're not rejecting that. We're doing this, but we love that as well. It's, we're not rejecting all that and saying, this is the only way, which is not the same way that a lot of tonal jazz musicians well, would. You know, they they might reject it. That's kind of funny too, because how, isn't it ironic? A lot of different genres, like for example, you know, metal guys would be like, oh, well, 
fuck all the other music. Metal's the only thing. Or punk rock would be like, you know, I'm punk rock. Everything else sucks, you know. And it's like how so dismissive of everything else. Whereas with jazz guys, they're just like, well, yeah, I like that. And, but I play this. And I like that. And I like that. And I like that. And I play that sometimes. And I play that sometimes. And it's almost like real musicians are guys, like, for example, like Ry Cooter, who will sit down and play with anybody. Or just guys that can do different things. Or like, for example, another guy, you know, Mr. Jeffrey Beck. Beck played so many different ways with so many different people. And to me, that's the mark of a real musician, you know. But again, like I say, it's ironic to me that there were certain musical genres that they were so dismissive or just kept themselves in a, in a framework, whereas the jazz guys not, didn't really do that so much. I don't want to necessarily cast aspersions, but I, I don't think it's the musicians. You say real musicians will listen to everything. I think, sadly, it's the fans of a particular genre who might be dismissive. Yeah. But um, anyway, look, there you go. So for people out there who... I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. We maybe spoke more about free jazz than about the film Free the Jazz. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, please go out and look for the film. I'll put a link. It's on YouTube. I don't know that it's on any physical media. I don't know that it's on any streaming service. This is really just a little film. But full congratulations to Chaban Giorgi. I don't know that he has much of a filmography, maybe only one or two other films. But I'm really glad that he put this out there. I'm really glad you both enjoyed it. No, really did. Because really initially, good. I was just kind of like, mm, I don't know. Like, yeah. Look, look t- never be afraid, Tim. I mean, the first episode ever, GG Allen. I, I mean, you didn't yeah. know. <laughs> Come on. You know, this is a music film podcast. The only promise that we've made to each other is that we'll never pick uh, Rattle and Hum. Don't say it. Don't say it. Uh, until the final episode. When we get to our final ever episode, we're going to do Rattle and Hum, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and Can't Stand the Music all in the one show. All right? Because that'll be that'll be our gateway to hell so that's the that's the reason that we'll never do rattle and hum can't stand the music (laughs) i see what you did there it's also a reason why we will never stop doing this show because we don't want to do those films right there you go so let's talk about next month that will be uh, august i'm hoping that i get this show out by the end of july we don't i don't have much time left but anyway we'll see how we go so august of 2023 it's nominally my pick but i've invited a guest to come on the show and he's picked a film his name is Dan Fisher, and Dan is uh, a guy in the uh, Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Listener Society Facebook group, and he was always putting up these posts saying, like, had like 30, 40, 50 pictures of great musicians from the 70s or great actors from the 60s or whatever. He said, rank them. And it'd just be an excuse for people to get into a conversation. I think I got into a conversation with him on Facebook and told him that we did this show. He said, oh, I'd love to join you. And he's just started a podcast called Let's Talk 10. So he said, can I come on your show? And I said, yes, I'd love you to. He has picked an iconic film from the 70s and we rarely get to do films that everyone has watched, but this is a great film. And this is 1977's John Badder Saturday Night Fever. Now, you could argue that it's more about the culture, more about the dancing and less about the music, but I'm sure we're going to talk about the history of disco as well. Immensely looking forward to it. If you want to get hold of us, see here podcast at gmail.com. Join the Facebook group, start the conversation about some of your favorite music-related films, or even if you've just watched something that you think is pretty shitty, warn us, let us know. And um, we have an Instagram, which Bernie started. Now I'm running. I can't remember how to find it, but look up Instagram, see here podcast you'll find it i'll put a link with that done i've really enjoyed this conversation i look forward to doing it all again next month all the best cheers cheers bye-bye
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.